Now, if you would please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 4. Now, the growth in the early church was incredible, and it was it was really defi- it defied all explanation that we really could see a small group of unqualified people with no money, no power, no influence turned the world upside down and changed the course of human history. They only had two weapons in their arsenal. This group of people only had two weapons, and they are this, that they were completely devoted to the message of the gospel, and that they were submitted to the Holy Spirit's leadership in their life. Those were the only two weapons that they had. Now, I do not want to be overly dramatic this morning, but I believe what our church will begin to experience in the days to come will bear the marks of a movement, which makes these things that we are reading in the book of Acts that much more applicable to us today. I believe that God is counseling us and guiding us as a church through these first chapters of Acts, and we have to heed the truths that we have seen and will see moving forward because our lives depend upon these truths. This right here in the book of Acts is what I've always wanted church to be like right here and today we're going to see a moment of failure and tragedy in the early church and I believe that God is warning us directly in it and so I want to start at the end of Acts chapter 4 because this is the setup for the next chapter we'll start in verse 34 And it says that there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and they laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, these were people who were the most generous people on earth. Nobody had the sense of, hey, that's my car or that's my house or my money. Everything was common to the early church, their property and their possessions. The gospel had loosened their grip on their stuff and it caused them to tighten their grip onto one another. And that's always what happens when the gospel gets a hold of somebody. They lose their grip on their worldly or earthly belongings and it tightens their grip on the people around them. Now I've heard that some people, when it comes to generosity, are like rocks. For God to get anything out of them, he has to hammer them. And even then, he only gets out chips and sparks. And some... I've been told are like sponges, that you can get something out of them, but in order for God to do it, he has to squeeze them. But then some, I've come to learn in ministry, some are like honeycombs, and they're sweet, and that honey just drips off of them. The gospel takes peoples whose hearts are made of stone, and he turns them into honeycombs. I mean, minus the bees, of course. But which one are you this morning? Are you the heart of stone or the heart of honeycomb? 
Because Barnabas here in the text, we see as one of the coolest figures in the book of Acts. He only makes six appearances in the Bible. He's the lead giver of the early church. He was the first person that embraced Paul post-conversion on the road to Damascus. Barnabas was the first guy who stuck up for Paul in, in Acts chapter 9 when all others were afraid or, or didn't want anything to do with him or didn't believe in Paul's conversion. In Acts chapter 11, Barnabas was the one who led the church of Antioch in diversification, meaning that he was the pastor of all of the Gentile converts. He was put in charge of taking relief money to Jerusalem when famine hit. Barnabas also went on Paul's first missionary journey. And then when another man in scripture named John Mark comes onto the scene and he fails Paul, Barnabas says, I will go and see if John Mark is different. I'll, I'll take him under my wing. I want him to grow up in the Lord. Barnabas, if I could summarize him in one sentence, I would say he lays money down and picks people up. Barnabas is that guy. He holds on his stuff so loosely, but holds on to other people so tightly. He is the picture of a gospel-transformed individual. Now, I want you to pick up with me now in chapter number 5. So you see this picture of what's going on. Now look at at number 1, chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. Now real quick, I want you to know that Ananias' name means God is merciful. And I, I think this is super important, by the way, and I will tell you in just a minute why. But Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, meaning they did this together, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So church, who's behind this? It was right there in the text. I just read it out loud. Who's behind this? Satan. Satan is. And it may interest you to know that this is the first post-cross appearance of Satan. The first post-cross appearance of Satan. Before the cross of Jesus Christ, Satan's strategy was to kill Jesus. Now it's to destroy the church. Look at verse number four. And while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so what was wrong with what Ananias and Sapphira were doing? Was it that they kept part of the money? The answer is no, it's not. And Peter said that directly to us in the text. The problem was that Ananias and Sapphira presented the gift as if it was the full amount. Satan had influenced the heart of Ananias, meaning, or he had filled the heart of Ananias, which means here that he had influence over him. And yet Peter could ask why he conceived this thing in his heart. And so church, I want to address something here, which is often misunderstood in context to Christianity. 
Satan can influence the life of a believer, meaning you can be oppressed by Satan. Even a spirit-filled believer can be influenced by Satan, but Satan cannot do your sinning for you. He can't. Ananias had to conceive or contrive this in his own heart, meaning that he made the choice to follow through with what he had been influenced to do. Now look at verse number five. And he says, and then when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear, and if you have a physical Bible, I want you to underline this phrase, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Then the young, verse 6, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. She didn't know her husband died. And Peter says to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Now, I, I always read this text and I think this had to be a tense moment. This had to be a tense moment sitting in the temple. Ladies, what is she supposed to do? Is she supposed to be a good wife and just submit to her husband? I mean, ladies, ask yourself, what would you have done in this situation? You and your husband, you agree together to misrepresent yourself, and then you are asked publicly, Every believer sitting in this room, I want you to pay very closely attention for just a moment. Submission never means following your spouse into sin. Never. Submission can mean that you follow your, your spouse into a mistake, as in your spouse thinks you need to move and take a job and then you don't do it. But submission never ever means following your spouse into sinfulness. And here's why I make such a big deal out of this. Because it seems that some people, especially women, and this is not a dog at women at all, but it seems like this, that some women get married and they relinquish all responsibility of their life and they just go along with their spouse. But there is a day coming. There is a day coming, church, where you will stand before God just like Ananias and Sapphira did here. And you will have to answer for your actions. And so please do not ever substitute your spouse for the Holy Spirit. Never. You will have to answer to God for your lifestyle choices and for your generosity and your involvement in church and, and your salvation and whether or not your kids are here and grown up in Christ, not just in the church. You will have to answer for your participation in the sins of others. And so I'm going to say this to you as I have said in the past. Your sin affects not just you, but everyone in your circle of influence the pastor that I sat under where I was pastoring in Florida used to say to us that you never sin alone. And so look with me now at verse number nine. And it says, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
And once again, if you have a physical Bible, I want you to underline this. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Great fear. And so I want to ask a few questions of this text this morning. Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? Why did they do what they did? Because the lies that we see, we see here in the text, they were symptomatic of something that was much deeper going on in their lives. They, they tell a lie so they can keep their money, but they tell the lie so they can get the praise of people. They're the opposite of Barnabas that we saw at the end of chapter 4. Barnabas was filled with the Spirit, and then he gave away his stuff so he could bless other people. Ananias and Sapphira, they were filled with idolatry, so they lied about their stuff so that they could have the, appraise, or the, the approval and the praise of mankind. Sin, church, always comes from somewhere. The lies went all the way down to the deepest parts of their hearts. And so Christian in here this morning, Christian that is watching online, churchgoer, non-churchgoer, person who will listen to this sermon later, please listen that jealousy, lying, cheating, not being generous, they're all like smoke from a fire that leads back to the fires at which you are worshiping. The problem, church, it's not the smoke, it's the fire that created the smoke. And for me, when I was in high school, really kind of young teen into early adulthood, I struggled craving the attention of people. I tell people frequently when I counsel them, or when I have an opportunity to speak on this subject, I tell people that I'm a recovering people pleaser. I'm a recovering people pleaser. And because of that, I was led in my early years to make some really poor choices, some really bad decisions. And when I got old enough, I began to mature out of those decisions, but I never dealt with the root issue in my life, loving the praise of people loving the praise of people. And as, a, as an adult, it began to manifest itself by the way that I was always concerned about what other people thought of me. And in, in ministry, it really, uh, it really affected the way that I taught and pastored people because I was constantly looking for the approval of somebody else. And it messed up not just my life, but it messed up my marriage. It messed up the way that I was ministering. And I even got to this point where I would do anything and say anything so that other people would approve of me or love me more. And that void in my heart drove me to every decision. And that void was created by an absence of submission to the Holy Spirit in my life. And I remember having a conversation with my mentor and, and probably one of my best friends. And we began to talk about this very topic. And it was in that moment of time that I began to... Uh, repent of those things in my life where I was trying to replace God's position in my life with the praise of people and the approval of people. 
And when I began to understand what it meant to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in submission to God, I quit needing to use people so much. What you and I have to do, what we need to do, is to quit lying and start submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We, we don't need to just fan away the smoke. We need to put out the fires in our lives. Because you're either one of, of two things. You're either filled and submitted to the Holy Spirit, which leads to satisfaction and joy in the things of God, or Satan is filling your heart and you're characterized by dissatisfaction and disappointment and discouragement. You, there is no in-between. There is no fence that you get to straddle in this life. It's, it's one or the other. And so why did God strike Ananias and Sapphira dead? Why? Why did he do that? Why in church... I mean, imagine coming into church this morning and someone asks you a question and you lie and you just drop dead right here. That would be scary. That would be terrifying to see and witness. So why, why on earth did God do this? Well, Ananias and Sapphira, what people don't understand is they were so close to the activity of God. They, they had so close that they had seen and witnessed the cross they were in the upper room when they were praying in one accord after Jesus said to go and share the gospel with all nations. They were there. They were a part of everything, church. And, and when we are close to the activity of God, the seriousness of sin in our life should increase. Think of it like the temple in the Old Testament. Every single blemish was magnified in the temple. And that's just how it is in the presence of God. These people had seen the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly why I told you that Ananias' name was so important. Ananias, God is merciful. He's seen and experienced the grace of God. But church, aside from the seriousness of sin as we are close to the activity of God, do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the concept of, of signs and miracles and we specifically honed in on the healing of the lame man? Do you guys remember that? We are in a stage in church history where everything is magnified. If you were to jump down, and I don't have time to cover this today, but if you were to read the next five verses, so 12 through 16, you will see a glimpse of what I mean when I say that the power of God was magnified. It says that Peter walked by people and his very shadow healed them. His shadow. Listen, I have never walked by, I've been to so many beaches living in Florida for 10 years. I have never walked by a single soul on the beach, and my shadow has never caused somebody who was lame to get up and start running along the beach. It's just never happened. But it happened here in the text. There was a magnification of God's power. And then we see the flip side of that coin and the fact that what happened to Ananias and Sapphira is a picture of how God feels about sin. That's how he feels about sin. But church, it's also a glimpse of what future judgment holds for everyone who has the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. Which then leads me to this question. What on earth is God trying to teach us here? What does this 
even mean? I've been in ministry now for over a decade. And I've come to realize that in the church there are two kinds of people. And it's nearly impossible to distinguish them on external things alone. Outside, Ananias and Sapphira looked just like Barnabas. They were active in church. They were generous. But underneath their confessions was a world of distinction. Deep in their hearts was idolatry that had never been repented of. Uh, How many of you in here know the name John Newton? John Newton was was the man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace! I've I've been reading the book, The Letters of John Newton, which are just a compilation of, of things that John Newton wrote down. And I got to a part in this book, and he says something that scared me. He said something that, that struck me so hard and got my attention. He says that Christians or so-called Christians are great imitators. And I'm like, where is he going with this? And he goes on to explain about how people grow up in church and they learn to imitate the language of Christians who have had genuine experiences with God. And he says that this is the great tragedy, that these people think that talking about those experiences is the same as having those experiences with God. And he goes on to close out this portion of this letter by saying that those people end up fooling themselves into thinking that because they use the language of a Christian, or because they go along with what other Christians say and do, that they've actually had some experience with God's glory and grace. But he says that those two people are not the same. And so what we have in church are people that have genuinely encountered the grace and glory of God. You have those people. You have those people sitting in church. You have people right here, and then you have others that have learned to imitate those experiences. And so then you must say, how do I know which group I fall in? Which is a question that every single one of us in this room has to ask and answer. Which group do I, do I fall in the one that has experienced the glory and the grace of God genuinely? Or do I fall in the category of the group that imitates it? So how do I know? How do I know which category I fall in? You look underneath. You look underneath. You're like, what does that even mean? Ananias and Sapphira had one confession with their mouth and something else hidden in their heart. They knew that they were inconsistent. They knew that they were hypocritical. And beyond that, there is a parallel here in the book of Acts all the way back to the Old Testament. In my favorite book of the Bible, Joshua. Since it's my name, I was just, some of you will get that later and it's fine. Do you guys remember when God brought Israel out of Egypt and he began to move them into the promised land? Do you guys remember that? Wow, all three of you? Do you guys remember when when God moved the Israelites into the promised land? Yes? Yeah, okay, great. Okay, 
So God moves Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. And do you guys remember there was the very first battle that occurred going into the promised land? Do you guys remember that? Some of you were like, yeah, it starts with J and ends with Erico. Jericho, yep, yep. So the, the, the very first battle that happens with the Israelites is the battle of Jericho. And they, they go into Jericho and there's this mighty victory through God. And you guys remember the walls crash down and God just used these people to obliterate, to obliterate the most prestigious area of the promised land in Jericho. And the Israelites just had this victory. And then next, they, they go to another battle. Do you guys remember that one? It's the battle of Ai. It's the battle of Ai. And this is a little podunk village, all right? And the, Israels are, the Israelites are thinking to themselves, we can just send in our JV team. We don't need to send in the varsity. Just send in the JV team into Ai. It's going to be completely fine. Imagine you just conquered Chicago and your next battle was Lion's Muir. That's what we have here. Or Saranac. We just conquered Chicago. We'll be fine. We can take Lions and Muir. There's like three people that live, right? That was the mentality of, of the Israelites. And guess what happens? They lose. They lose in AI. They lost the battle in AI. And Joshua comes to God and he says, What in the world just happened? What just happened? And God says, well, there's a man in your army who has hidden sin. There's a man in your army who has hidden sin. And so, of course, Joshua's like, who is it? Right? God, who is it? But God doesn't give him a name. He just begins to ask Joshua to do all of these tasks, and it would reveal who the individual was. And so Joshua separates the armies into the 12 tribes and he separates them into the family clans and he whittles down and whittles down all the way until there's one man and his family left. His name was Achan. And they go into Achan's tent and they uncover Achan's tent floor and there is a massive hole there and it's filled with the spoils of war that Achan had stolen. Items that were forbidden by God to touch or take. They were forbidden. You know, from the outside, there was nothing that would have distinguished Achan from any other Israelite soldier. Nothing at all. But on the inside, there was stuff buried and hidden from everyone else. If you don't know that story, Achan and his family were, were killed right then and there because of his hidden sin. And so I have a question for you this morning. What's hidden in your tent? What's, what's hidden in your tent? I mean, you, you know what it is, but nobody else can see it. What is it? Because I'm going to be really honest with you this morning. I can't see what it is. Just because I'm a pastor, I, I, I can't see what's hidden in your tent. I don't, I don't get, you know vision like Superman, and I can see things that other people can't. But it bears asking the question, is the confession of my mouth that Jesus is Lord, is that backed up by a life that has been transformed by the gospel outside of these four walls? I mean, is it? 
because we can't hide from God. I've also learned that in in my 34 years of life, we can't hide from God. The Holy Spirit knows your thoughts. He knows your thoughts, and it's as if they are being played over the loudspeaker to him or played on a screen in front of him. And I want to say something to you this morning. There's something very scary that is going to happen. There's going to be a day when every single secret will be spoken from the rooftops. Every hidden thing will be exposed. And in all seriousness this morning, are you ready for that? Are you ready? Because Ananias and Sapphira, they had forgotten it. They've forgotten it. They were so consumed with the praise of people that they had forgotten that the only opinion that mattered was God's. I've come to see throughout ministry that a lot of church people are so deceived. A lot of Christians in our culture are deceived. They're so consumed by their outward appearance that they neglect ever dealing with anything internally before God. Church, I I can't see inside your tent. But as I read scripture, I've come to understand that the closer that we are to grace, the greater the offense of sin in your life. And as God begins and has been moving in our church, and as he begins to work in family units, sin in your life will become magnified. And so I beg of you this morning. I beg of you not just as your pastor, but I beg of you as your brother in Christ, do not take lightly holy things. Do not take lightly holy things because fear that we see here in the text fear is supposed to be a part of our worship and that might be a super unusual idea to you but did you notice in the text how much fear permeated the message in verse 5 and great fear came upon all who heard it Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and everyone who heard it. Great fear. But do you know what the result of that great fear was? Verse number 14, more people than ever came to know Christ and were added to the church in those days. Well, I I thought God was this big cosmic teddy bear that exuded warm, serene feelings of peace. I thought, yeah, you're, you're right, church. God is infinite love. You're absolutely right. God is infinite love. But you can only know God's infinite love as you begin to see the magnificence of his glory and the might of his power and his justice. How many of you in here know the author and retired pastor by the name of John Piper? Okay, a handful of you. I just finished reading 
um, his book called The Pleasures of God. And there's a great analogy that I thought tied in to the sermon. I'm going to read to you a chunk of this book. It's going to come to the screens so that you can read along. But he gives an analogy of exactly what I'm talking about. He says this, Suppose that you were exploring an unknown Greenland glacier in the dead of winter. Just as you reach a sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow and a terrible storm breaks in. The wind is so strong that the fear rises in your heart that it might blow you over the cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. Here, you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm, it rages on and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. Not everything that we call fear vanishes from your heart, only the life-threatening parts. And there remains the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such a power. And so it is with God. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Hope turns fear into a trembling and peaceful wonder, and fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. The terrors of God make the pleasure of his people intense. And the fireside fellowship is all the sweeter when the storm is howling outside the cottage. That is a lot to take in. But as I read this book, I began to redefine what biblical fear was for myself. Biblical fear should be seen as awe mixed with intimacy. That's, that's exactly how it is explained here. Church, you, you guys know, especially those of you who are closer to me, you guys know my personality, right? I, for those of you who know me well, you, you know my personality. You know that I enjoy joking and lightness and having fun. I'm sorry to any of you who have ever been... Um, um, uh, witness to my really bad dad jokes um, and had to endure them. I apologize. I just, I, I do. You guys know that there is a lightness about me and that I love, love to have a good time. But at the same time, when we come together, we are coming into the presence of a holy God. A God so holy that one sin in his presence is like a butterfly trying to land on the surface of the sun. He's made us safe through Jesus Christ. Praise God. But the Christian life, we should be coming before him trembling. Because as fear increases of God, as that increases, so does our sense of his love. His love increases in our life as our fear of him does. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, he understands understood that very thought. Do you guys remember the line, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear." Fear, church, is to be a part of our worship. 
I want you to look at this verse on the screen, Acts chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up walking in what? The fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and it was multiplied. Which leads me to say this to you. I love you enough to tell you that sin is a deadly serious matter to God. And so let's be honest this morning. I mean, all all for honesty in church. Many of us find God's actions here in the text offensive. You may not voice it, but many of us find God's actions offensive. And if we are offended by the swift judgment of a holy God that's described here in the text, it reveals our ignorance of God's holiness. And it really reveals our sinfulness and the seriousness of our sin in relation to his holiness. We, we shouldn't read portions of scripture like this and ask the question, why did they die? We should wonder, why are we still alive? R.C. Sproul said in his book, The Holiness of God, that God is indeed long-suffering and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, that we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance and to give us a time to be redeemed. Instead, church, instead of embracing God's patience and coming to Him humbly to receive forgiveness, we oftentimes misconstrue grace as an opening to grow even bolder in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that He is powerless to punish it. Someone once told me that our supreme folly as believers is thinking that we are going to get away with our revolt. I mean, if if Jesus really went through what he went through to save us, nails in his hands and feet, his beard ripped from his face, Roman guards spitting on him, lacerations to his body with a whip. If he went through all of that to save us, and if we neglect it and don't take it seriously and we put it off, what's it going to be like to stand before God in the end? What is it going to be like? I mean, Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How are we going to escape? I know in here, I know in here we say Jesus is Lord, but what does it look like out there the rest of the week? What does it look like? Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott, missionary, probably in my eyes, one of the most influential missionaries of our time. He said of thousands of Christians, the same exact thought, He said, Christians sing the song, I surrender all, but then give an unyielding no to God. And before his death, J. 
Jim Elliott said something that I will never, ever forget. I was watching a documentary. He said that Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. And so as I begin to to land this plane, I have a serious question for us this morning. Are you treating God flippantly? Are you treating God flippantly? Are, Are you a person who feels like you have accepted Jesus as Savior and now you have a heavenly visa card to sin with impunity? We see, especially from this text, that God is not mocked. We see it. And when you take his spirit and use it as a license to sin, you can see how he feels. Are you someone who walks through church thinking more about your own glory than God's? Because this gets me. This bothers me the most in this text, Ananias and Sapphira attempted to take over the church to promote themselves. That's not what this is about. We're not here for you or for me. We're here because God is good and he saved us and he loves us and he doesn't want us to stay the same as what we were when he brought us into the family. And so if our agenda here is something about you and I, then we have failed as Christians. We don't get the opportunity to come here and promote ourselves. And God takes this so seriously, church. I imagine now at this point, many of you could be sitting out there or listening online right now, having overwhelming feelings of despair, thinking to yourself, how on earth could I ever stand before God? Who in here has a pure heart based upon everything that you've just said? Who? Which one of us in here is not Ananias and Sapphira? There's something that we see here in the text that is probably easily overlooked that in our humanness we would walk away with feelings of despair, overwhelmed by our sinfulness. there's something here that you probably missed. Do you remember when Jesus was still alive and he looked at Peter and he said, get thee behind me, Satan? Do you remember that? Don't you think it's a little ironic that now Peter's standing here asking people why Satan has filled their heart? Why has Satan filled your heart Do you want to know what the difference between Peter and Ananias and Sapphira? Peter repented. Peter turned away from sin and self and turned towards Jesus. Do you remember when, when Peter went back to being a fisherman and they see what they thought was Jesus on the shore? And scripture tells us that, G, that Peter jumps out of the boat and he swims to get to Jesus. And they sit and and they have fish on the beach and they eat. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Do you love me? 
Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you remember what Jesus' response was every single time Peter said yes? Then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter turned back to Jesus in his moment of weakness because he recognized that he had nothing without Jesus. I'm going to say something to you this morning, and I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying, but the sin in your life is not what's fatal. It's the refusal to be honest about that sin and seek forgiveness from God. That's what's fatal in your life. That's it. But there's a portion of scripture that I run to on a daily basis that brings me so much hope. It's not John 3.16, though there is great hope that Jesus came and died for us. But as a Christian, you want to know what verse gives me hope? 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of what? All unrighteousness. All of it. I also find irony in 1 John 1, 9. If you own up to your sin, Jesus releases you from it. But if you hide it, you're held accountable. One of my favorite definitions of the gospel is being known and loved by God. It's one of my favorite definitions of the gospel. Because you and I are more wicked in the sight of God than we ever realize, and yet we are more loved and accepted than we could ever dream of. Which leads me to these last couple of things. When I was... Just shy of 24, I was sitting at Res Life Church, now called Restore, down the road here. It was a Wednesday night. Pastor John um, got up and said that he had rewritten his entire message the morning of that church service because God wanted him to speak on something different than he had planned. And he said, bear with me because I have hardly any notes. And I remember him stepping into the pulpit that night. And I remember him beginning to preach on secret sin. That, that single night. And the moment that he started to read the scripture, I became so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit overwhelmed by the conviction that I had tried to push away for so long. I tried to do everything I could in my own power to keep the Holy Spirit at bay. But I knew exactly what, what he was bringing up in my life because I couldn't get out of my mind. Out of my mind, the fact that at the age of, of almost 24, I had been addicted to pornography for nearly 13 years of my life that it ravaged my every single thought. And I remember at the very end, and Pastor John Fashion, he did an altar call. 
And I knew with everything in me, I'm not going to stand up because I don't want people to think that I'm not a believer because this wasn't a salvation issue. And so I went to one of the men that I now would consider probably the best, one of my best friends in this life, Jared. Um, Jared Gregory, who was a pastor down there as well. And I began to share with him. He said, what's going on, Josh? Something's going on and, and just you can tell me, this is safe. And I began to unpack for him. The first, the first incidents at the age of 11, when I wasn't even looking for it, I came across it at a friend's home. And he said something to me that night that I will never, ever forget. And it's a line that I have spoken over and over to people through counseling. You're only as healthy as your secrets. You're only as healthy as your secrets. And it was in that moment of time when I began to embrace the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and began to submit to Him. And it wasn't until then, it wasn't until then that life began to make sense. That my relationship with the Lord began to make sense. That my marriage began on an extremely long road to healing. Why do I tell you this? Why do I share any of this with you? Well, because in the text, even after, after the sin, God's Spirit kept moving. God's Spirit kept moving. The gospel kept multiplying right in front of them. People kept getting saved. Their sin was really bad, but the grace of God was amazing. And sometimes we are tempted in this room to think about the early church like it was perfect. And, and so, of course, you know, we say that's why they had success in the Bible. But I'm here to tell you that the church then had moments of weakness, just like churches here do. Moments of, of, of time where members lie and where they're hypocritical and, and where they're inconsistent. And when you and I lionize the early church that way, we start to think that what they experienced is so far out of reach for us because we are not like them. And I'm here to tell you the answer to that is no, that's not true. That's not true because God didn't need the church in the, in the book of Acts to be perfect, to bless them. He didn't. Which means that we here at the well can look for that same blessing and experience that they had when we're faithful to God. And that is great news for us. That's great news that God can use us as a church, even though we and this pastor have areas of sin in our life. As long as the caveat, as long as we stay close to confession. As long as, as we are not just close, but quick to confess. Confess. 